The New Testament reading is from James 1, 26 through 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the word, from the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, One Ancient Hope, it's very good to be with you this morning, uh, especially to be with more of you than, than usual. And it really does make us appreciate and, and remember the gift that community is, especially to be able to gather together here in one place. And towards that end, let's, uh, let's turn together to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the beautiful weather. Um, we thank you, Father, for this chance to, to gather together. And we thank you for your word that you use to both create and to craft your church. And I do pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to the intentions that you've given, that you've laid down for your word. And I pray, Father, that you would apply these words to our head, to our heart, and to our hands. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, um, we come here to our fourth sermon in our series on, on James. And in particular, we've been looking at how James calls us to flourish within community. And James does something special today in the passage we're looking at. In particular, he teaches us that in a very real sense, that absolutely everything that the Christian does should be an act of worship to God. This notion that, that nothing that we do falls outside of our devotion to him. That there, there is no break by which we can divide the, the non-religious and the religious the, the sacred and the secular parts of our life. James is telling us that everything in life is infused with the theological. And as we'll see, this is going to transform the way we both understand the undertake community. And in particular, in these, these two small verses, James is going to draw our attention to two important ways that we worship God in our lives the way we worship as speakers, and the way that we worship as neighbors. So I want to look at both of those in turn, looking first at the way that we worship as speakers. Look with me again at James 1.26. James writes the following, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So the, the first thing to point out here is the special word that James uses for religious. And it's a Greek term, threskos, and it actually refers to the cultic aspects of, of worship. And when I say cultic, I, I don't mean the modern notions of cult. We might think of Jim Jones and Jonestown. We might think of David Koresh, the Branch Davidians. That, that's not what James has in mind here. When we say cultic, we think of the certain devotional practices 
um, that we find in the Old Testament. We might think of much of the book of, of Leviticus that outlines both the duties of, of priests and the functions of both the tabernacle and the temple. For example, in Leviticus, we find quite a bit on sacrifices, on festivals, on purity rituals. And these just are the cultic aspects of Israel's religious life. But what James is telling us is that we might actually think that we're religious in this sense, but be completely deceived. And be deceived based on our speech, based on the things that we say. In fact, James is telling us that if we have a certain kind of speech, then our religion is worthless. And if you think about it, this is kind of a strange term to describe bad religion. What, what does he mean by, by worthless here? Um, it's a description that's a bit surprising. But if, if we actually look at the, the word here and the note communicates, we find a lot. And that Greek word is matthias. And this word has what we might call both a rich and wretched history in the history of the New Testament, or in the minds of the New Testament authors. And this is especially so in what James is doing, because what James does is he connects worthless religion to what he calls unbridled speech. And in fact, there's actually an Old Testament precedent for this. But we have to look at the, the Septuagint. And the, the Septuagint is um, the translation of the Hebrew Bible. And it was always at the hands of and in the minds of the New Testament authors. And interestingly, when we read the third commandment in the... Reason. Um, do not use the Lord's name in Matthias. We find this same word of uselessness, of emptiness, of futility. And often when we hear the third commandment translated, it's done so in terms of do not use the Lord's name in, in vain, which is helpful, but it actually helps us, I think, get a better scope of what James and the author of Exodus are communicating if we think of not using the Lord's name in, in worthlessness, not using the Lord's name in futility, not using the Lord's name in an empty idleness. Even more, when we look at that prohibition, it's interesting because we're not given many details or many specifications. We're just told, do not use the Lord's name in vain. And it's, it's pretty broad. It's pretty wide-ranging. It's a very general kind of, of wording. And the importance there is that means it has a very broad and general application. As one commentator writes of the third commandment, it is deliberately chosen to permit a wide range of application, covering every dimension of the misuse of the Lord's name. So to rightly even to understand the third commandment, we have to think of a command prohibiting certain uses of all of God's names and all of God's titles. It's a very strong prohibition, a very strong commandment against futile speech. It's very, very comprehensive. So fair enough, 
we might say, but, but what does this have to do with worthlessness? What does this have to do with futility? Well, for, for one thing, we might think of the book of Ecclesiastes, and the Septuagint version of the book of Ecclesiastes actually uses the noun form of Matthias, uh, Matthias. Uh, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Matthias of Matthias, all is Matthias. So in, in some sense, we get a sense of what it's like to live in a corrupted world. But it's actually Romans 8, 19 through 20 that I think gives us the best picture of what this word means. In Romans 8, 19 through 20, Paul says the following, and he also uses the noun version of that word. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, to matiates, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, that's, that's a really rich passage, and there's so many things that you could unpack there. But what I want to specifically focus on is the fact that because of the curse of Genesis 3, because of the corruption of creation brought about by the fall of humanity, all of creation is operating with some form of futility, some form of worthlessness. Nothing in all of creation is functioning exactly as God intends it to do. As one New Testament scholar, James Dunn, writes of uh, Paul's use of matiates in this passage, it speaks of the futility of an object which does not function as it was designed to do, or, more precisely, which has been given a role for which it was not designed and which is unreal or illusory. So what that means is that when we think of matias, James's word there for worthlessness, for futility, it's some notion of using some good thing in creation against the designs, against the purposes, against the telos, against the end that God has established for it. We might think, for example, of a, of a tree. And there are many wonderful things about a tree, good uses of a tree that God intends for our blessing and our flourishing. We can look at a tree and we can admire its, its beauty. We can enjoy the fruit of a tree. We can even use the wood from a tree to, be, to build beautiful structures. And in fact, we, we see this commanded by God in the Old Testament building of, of the tabernacle and the temple. These are good uses for God's good and gracious gift of a tree. But we can also use a tree in Matthias. We can use a tree in such a way that it cuts against God's good and gracious purposes. To use an extreme example, we can use a tree to make a spike that we could use for torture. People have done this in history. But when that's done with a tree, the tree is being subjected to Matthias. It's being subjected to a purpose that cuts against God's intentions for the thing. But what about words? Because James, in particular, draws a special connection to matias, to worthlessness, to futility, and our words. Well, it's important to remember that words themselves are also good gifts of creation. 
that we receive from God. And just like the tree, they can be used for good and gracious things, or they can be used for evil things. They can be used for matthias. In particular, James warns us that our speech functions as a kind of diagnostic of our devotion for God. Again, for James, he's trying to relate the cultic to each and every aspect of our lives. He's showing us that everything becomes a mean by which we worship God. To begin with, he's showing us just how comprehensive the third commandment is. James is telling us not just to avoid worthless, futile speech about God, but worthless and futile speech about absolutely everything. Or we, we might reframe it like this. James is telling us that our worship of God is meant to undergird absolutely everything that we say. So let, let's make this concrete when we think about the use of, of words. So before I, I studied theology, my, my background was actually in, in TESOL, to speaking English or teaching English to speakers of, of other languages um, in both an EFL or a ESL context. And it's interesting when you look at language learning curriculum, because in a sense, language learning curriculum, when you're teaching someone another language, you're teaching them, in a sense, to be human in another culture. But when you look at a lot of language learning textbooks, you notice something interesting, something that's actually quite discouraging. There are plenty of instructions, activities, and exercises that teach students how to make complaints in hotel lobbies, plenty of instructions and exercises that teach them how to ask for prices in department stores. But sadly, there are few, if any, exercises that teach students how to apologize, how to forgive, how to console, how to encourage in that target language and culture. So what we see is that often these curriculums are presenting a very truncated, very small view of the human person. They're teaching students how to consume, but not how to commune. That's very problematic. And it makes us look at our own hearts. Are we ourselves using words to forgive, to console, to encourage, to hold accountable, to confess? This might be rare. These language functions, these speech acts might be rare in language learning books, but they just are the primary way we use words to love our neighbor in community. They are bridled speech. Again, James talks about a bridle. And in this sense, uh, the image he's using is something used to, to tame, to guide, to direct an, an animal, something like a horse or a donkey. And he's calling us to bridle our speech. But, but what is the bridle there? What is supposed to lead and guide and direct our words? Well, for James, it's the good and gracious character of God as disclosed, as manifested, as revealed in the gospel. In a sense, the gospel just is the grammar of the Christian life. It structures all that we say and do. It structures everything that we communicate. Think of it like this. When we use our words to confess, 
we are acknowledging that there is such a thing as sin and that we ourselves have sinned against God and neighbor. When we use our words and community to forgive, we're acknowledging that such a thing as forgiveness exists and that my forgiving of the neighbor or the neighbor's forgiving of me is itself rooted in a divine forgiveness by which God reconciles us to himself through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. When we use our words to encourage, we're affirming that the Christian is never, ever without hope, that God will work all things in our lives to form us to the image of Jesus Christ. When we hold others accountable and ourselves accountable, we're, we're acknowledging that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to expose both our sin and the sin of our neighbors and push us both to repentance. When we console, we are affirming and acknowledging the reality of Christ, who is our great high priest, who is God, become human, and so has experienced the deepest miseries of this life. And so who can pray with us and for us with the deepest of empathy? But when we reject these uses of language, we reject the gospel we take the Lord's name in Matthias. When we refuse to forgive, we reject God as our own forgiving and gracious Redeemer. If we refuse to confess our own sins, we dismiss the corruption of our own heart and the very sins that Christ himself has died for. When we refuse to encourage, we reject the surety of God's purposes and his commitment to bring all things together in Jesus Christ. When we refuse to hold ourselves and others accountable with our speech, we dismiss the love of our neighbor and the call to flourishing that God has put upon our neighbor's life. And to refuse these speech acts, these language functions, these language games, is to refuse to bridle our tongue with the gospel. It is to take the Lord's name in Matthias, to use our words with futility and with worthlessness. Owen Barfield once said this about C.S. Lewis. Somehow what Lewis thought about everything was secretly present in what he said about anything. And truly, there is a deep sense in which Everything that we know and affirm about God is secretly present in every use of our words. And when we refuse to let the gospel be the bridle, when we refuse to let the gospel be the grammar of our communication, we are using the Lord's name in futility, in Matthias. But when we perform these speech acts to forgive, to console, to encourage, to, uh, to confess, we're working against Matthias. We're using words, one of God's good gifts, in accordance with his creation. Because language is meant to facilitate loving communion with both God and, and neighbor. Everything in creation is meant to help us to fulfill the two basic commandments. To love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In the human life, that's the purpose of everything. And that's the purpose of our words. 
So then if our language is working to destroy community, we're speaking in Matthias. Again, trees are not meant to be torture devices. Neither are words. So we have to ask ourselves, are we using our words to create community, to cultivate community, or to kill community? Are we using our words to build relationships or to break them? And to be sure, we all speak in Matthias very, very often. But praise the Lord that speech acts such as confession and forgiveness exist. And they exist because of the gospel. But to learn these speech acts takes work. To use anything, words or otherwise, is a skill. At first, it's awkward, but then we get better. Just as it takes practice to take the wood of a tree and to craft it into a beautiful structure, so it takes work to take the raw material of words and to craft them into beautiful friendships. What we need to learn is a kind of craftsmanship. And words rightly used will help us to reach that full fruition of Psalm 1, that picture that is always in the background of everything that James is saying. And that brings us to our second and final point, worshiping as neighbors. Look with me at James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's important, again, to reiterate the fact that James is using religion in a cultic sense, talking about those special rituals of religious devotion. And just as he's showing us that the third commandment is actually much larger, is much more comprehensive than we might have thought, so too he's telling us that religion, in this cultic sense, is meant to spill out into everything that we do. To speak of the cultic is not just to speak of what happens on Sunday. In particular, James sort of ups the ante because he's actually using language here from Old Testament purity rituals. He speaks of being pure and undefiled before God the Father. This is the image that he's bringing to mind in the, uh, in the eyes of his readers. It's important to notice, as Christians, we do believe that Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law, but we still follow a number of religious rituals, rituals that God himself has commanded and given us in Scripture. We come together on Sunday mornings like this to, to sing, to pray, to tithe, to read and to hear the word of God, and to partake of the sacraments, the sacraments of baptism and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. James is not saying that these things are unimportant. Quite the, quite the opposite. He's saying they're very important, and they're so important that they need to spill out into every other area of our lives. Because if they're not producing the life rightly lived before God the Father, then they are, in a sense, Matthias, if they're not producing that life of flourishing that God intends for the human. And it's also important to realize that rituals themselves are not bad things. Rituals are absolutely everywhere. We're always partaking in and being formed by rituals. Going to the mall, a transaction at the bank, buying something on the internet. 
All of these are rituals, prescribed scripts that shape us deeply, for better or for worse. And James is telling us that these religious rituals that we do together, especially on Sunday morning, are to reach beyond the walls of the church. In fact, James gives us a two-part summary of the ways that these purity rituals, as he calls them, are meant to spill over into our everyday life. Again, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. For James, these religious rituals are meant to inform, shape, guide all else that we do. But what does this mean? Why, why would this be coupled with this cultic language? How specifically does James seek to infuse the religious into all that we do? Well, one important clue here is what we find later in his letter, in chapter 3, verse 9. Um, also related to speech, James says the following, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So what James is doing here is he's rooting ethical conduct in humanity's likeness to God. He's pointing out that each and every person that we meet is made in the very image of God. And I think this is an uncontroversial statement, but there is no higher dignity awarded to the human than saying that every human is made in the very likeness of God, made in his image, meant to reflect his very being. And if that's the case, if every human person truly does bear the image of God, then we come to understand how every interaction is charged with this cultic, with this religious element that every interaction we have with another human being, we're encountered, encountering someone who is made in the very image of the one that we worship. And John Calvin is very helpful here in, in putting these strands together. He says the following, God, as it were, has put whatever human you meet in God's own place that you may recognize toward them the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. Say that they do not deserve even your least effort for their sake, but the image of God which recommends them to you is worthy of giving yourself and all of your possessions. End quote. So one wants to say, just as offerings of creational bounties were laid before images of pagan deities as acts of devotion, so too are God's people called to lay their goods before instantiations of God's own image, namely one another. And, and I want to be careful here, but I, I, I feel safer because I'm following Calvin. But if every person is made in the image of God, there's a sense in which each and every person you meet, including yourself, is a kind of altar to God on which we place our offerings to God. When we give our neighbor attention, care, resources, and love, there's a sense in which we're putting those on our neighbor 
who bears the image of God and is an altar to God. And we're giving those things to God. To be sure, God needs absolutely nothing. God has full and complete life in and of himself. All that he gives us is a gift from his own overflowing fullness. But one way that God commands us to love him is by needing the need, meeting the needs of those made in his image. And again, every interaction with the other is a kind of cultic, a kind of ritual offering to God. And James is telling us that if we are not loving the marginalized, we are not recognizing nor affirming that every person is made in his own image. If we're only serving and loving those of high status, those with many resources, this is a diagnostic of our own heart and our own matthias. We're not caring for others in a way that is love for God. We're loving ourselves. Because when we love those who can give back to us, there's a sense in which we're tempted to give in order to get, to give to, to get ahead, to give in order to receive personal or professional advancement, to move ahead in career, finances, and social status. And I want to be careful here because absolutely all service has a return. I, I don't mean that love is, is patronizing. We never encounter anyone as a pure and simple benefactor. We always enjoy the blessings of friendship and learning from someone who inhabits a very different social space from ourselves. Nonetheless, James is telling us that if we are not serving the marginalized, we have a diagnostic, we have a diagnosis of Matthias. Because we're not loving others as an altar to God. That altar is actually ourselves. We're putting it on the altar of the other person, but for the sake of getting something back in return. We are the objects of, of offering. And one reason, one way we know that we're falling victim to this is if we ourselves are not pouring ourselves out for the orphans, for the widows in our midst. Which means that every act of listening we give to the neighbor, every meal we cook for the neighbor, every grocery we buy for the neighbor, every car ride we provide for the neighbor, we are loving God by loving his image. These are our good creational bounties that we're laying before him. But I want to be careful here because I also don't want that to suggest that we're not truly loving our neighbor. Um, to, to offer an example near and dear to my heart, which is a big deal in our own household, uh, Harry Potter, um, which hopefully many of you are familiar with because that will help this, this example. But we meet two interesting characters in Harry Potter. We meet Severus Snape, and we also meet Sirius Black. And Severus and Sirius, uh, Snape and, and Sirius, they have a lot in common, but they also have a lot of differences as, as well. Interestingly, they both offer sacrificial service at the cost of their own life to Harry Potter. And they both do it initially from the same conviction. 
So Snape loves Harry Potter's mom, Lily. But Snape does not care at all for Harry Potter. Uh, he's cruel. He's cold towards him. He has no affection, no likeness for, for Harry. And the service he gives to Harry is only, only because of his, his love for Harry's mother, Lily. However, the case with Sirius is very, very different. Uh, Sirius loves both of Harry's parents, uh, Lily and James. He's actually Harry's godfather. But Sirius also has a deep affection for Harry Potter. He loves to be with him. And in a sense, we see Sirius's love for Lily and James come to full fruition for his loving or through his loving service to Harry. Sirius cannot separate the two in the same way that Snape can. And I realize that's kind of a ridiculous example, but it does give us a picture of how we're meant to love our neighbor. We're meant to love our neighbor in the same way that Sirius loves Harry. In the sense that loving our neighbor is both the expression of our love for God and the means of growing our love for God. But even here, though, we've not yet reached the core of, of Christianity. What sets the kind of offering that Christianity speaks of apart from all other religions and all other belief systems? For it's not only the how of the offering, but it's, it's why the offering is given in the first place. When James speaks of any kind of cultic offering, it is not to earn God's approval. It is because of God's approval. James knows that if it's all on us to earn God's approval, then can we ever feel as if we've offered enough, especially to God, for whom we are dependent for our very being, for whom we're dependent on absolutely everything? Can we ever feel as if we've loved God as we should? Can we ever feel that we've satisfied the full extent of our religious duties? Can we ever rest in God's approval and the assurance of his love? But again, this is the beautiful part of Christianity. It's this notion that God has become human in Jesus Christ, and in so doing, he has actually already provided everything he asks of us. For in Christ, what we have just is the ultimate offering to God. We have the offering of a perfect human life freely and fully offered to the Father. And when we have faith in Christ, we ourselves can rest in the fact that Christ's perfect offering of a full and complete life becomes ours. That God credits that cultic, religious, full without stop, full without stop offering to us. But it goes further because Christ also takes upon himself the worthlessness and the futility that our sins have released upon the world. Christ takes upon himself the curse of death that we find in Genesis 3. Christ himself becomes Matthias. 
his humanity is killed, is crushed, is undone. He himself is subjected to the utter corruption of human purposes. Again, a tree is not meant to be made into an instrument of torture, but that is exactly what we find on the cross. Christ endured the torture, the matthias of the cross for us. So when we love God and love our neighbor, it is a response to God's love for us in Christ. We don't move out for the sake of acquiring his love, but from the very assurance of his love. So look at the cross and thank God for what he has already done for you, the way that he has vanquished the Matthias in our life. Thank God by offering a gift of thanks on the altar of the other. That is the person next to you who bears God's very image. Because we love our neighbor not from guilt, but from the deepest gratitude to God. And this deep gratitude is also the very grammar, the very bridle of each and every word that we speak. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have rescued us from Matthias, from worthlessness, from futility, that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, and you have redeemed us and are redeeming each and every part of creation. Help us, Lord, to use our words in this community in a way that builds up love of you and love of our neighbor, and help us to serve our neighbor out of love for you with love for our neighbor. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit. Amen.